Many, every week we confess our faith. Many of those weeks we confess our faith using the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed, a summary of the Christian faith, refers to things we believe about what Jesus Christ has accomplished already in the past for us. He was crucified. He, was died. he, he died. He was buried. On the third day, he rose again. In the creed, we also confess things we believe that Jesus will do for us in the future. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. But, you can find it in your bulletin, the eagle-eyed among you, what parts of the Apostles' Creed are, as we are confessing our faith in real time, are the present tense? In the real time of 2017, as we confess our faith, we are confessing a faith not just about things we believe Jesus has done and not just about things we believe Jesus will do. We are confessing things we believe Jesus is doing right now in this moment, in this moment, which will never come again. And now it's gone, but it's true now in the next moment too. What are we confessing? We're confessing that Jesus Christ in the Apostles' Creed is ascended is ascended to the Father's right hand. This is where he is now, ruling over all in the present tense. This is part of the genius, the brilliance, of the the title for this commissioned piece of art, this fantastic piece of art, Anabino. And if you've been here a while, you would know why it's titled that and what it is, but as a reminder... That word is the Greek word that Jesus, we just heard Jesus say in John chapter 20. He says, I am ascending, anabino. That right now, in this real moment, Jesus is not on the cross. And right now, in this real moment, Jesus has not yet returned to earth. Where is Jesus in this moment? He is ascended at the Father's right hand. And we learn from this, of course, that he is also with us. The very first sermon I preached in the last century, uh, I titled it uh, Donut Hole Theology from a phrase that I heard from one of my professors. And he was referring to the very real phenomenon that he experienced and that I experience all the time of having a relatively solid faith in the historic facts of Jesus Christ, crucified, raised again, and a relatively stable faith that really it is all leading to this great coming day where all will be made right. But what about four o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon? What about in a moment when you are jogging down the street because you're late for church and your foot hits a piece of ice and you slip and you're headed towards the ground? Where is Jesus there? And so our text today is about this moment. Christ filling this moment. The ascended Christ now with us by his spirit. What a delight it is to not have to look at me throughout the sermon. You can look at the piece of art. You can let it 
bring you, evoke different things for you based on the different time of day. I've never seen this work of art before during a snowstorm, so it will evoke different things. I hope you don't mind if I preach most of my sermon facing this direction. I probably won't do that, but what is this getting at? Hopefully, this sermon will be able to put into words some of the rich theology that Makato Fujimura, I always get the vowels mixed up, uh, the world-famous artist, what he meant by this work. He is getting at the fact that this, this resurrection of Christ, this now ascended rule of Christ, is the present reality for our real moments here and now. As we look at the text this morning, I want us to see three things. We're going to simply look at the power of that word that Jesus speaks to Mary Magdalene. Anabino, I am ascending. And as we look at, these, at this whole passage and the implications, we're going to try to summarize it under these three different headings. But as we do that, let's pray together now. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how we praise you and we thank you for all moments in the past where you have been faithful. How we praise you and we thank you for the promise of your kind, sovereign, gracious rule over all moments in the future. Strengthen our hope. But we also praise you for your present reality. All moments that are the now present where you are with us by your spirit. So make this day, this moment, this word from God, this your word today, powerful for our lives. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. If you've been a Christian for some years, you're probably familiar with the texts around the resurrection of Jesus. And so you know the events leading up to this crucifixion of Christ. Even though Jesus had promised again and again that He was going to be killed, but he was not going to stay dead. He was going to be, he's going to rise up. Even though he promised that many, many times, we know, reading the texts, that the disciples, Mary Magdalene, one of them, had such a hard time believing that. And so on this day, this Easter Sunday, she's there, we pick up the story, she's there weeping outside the tomb. All her hopes are crashed. She is in a state of despair, discouragement. She's even in a state of confusion. When Jesus does appear to her, she doesn't recognize him immediately. She thinks he's the gardener. How about you? How about you, 4 o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon? How about you in a hard conversation with your spouse or significant other? How about you if you're a church planter moving up here from Florida and you've never seen snow before in your life and this week you get a foot of snow the day you, the day you land into town. These moments where our present reality seems nothing but confusion and despair and discouragement with no hope for the future. It just seems like nothing but death. 
This was a horrific death, we remember. This was the result of a totalitarian regime, a violent, horrific death. She, Mary Magdalene, is part of this minority culture. And it's, it's a time of despair and confusion. But here comes the resurrected Jesus, and he speaks this word to her. So here's the first thing we want to see, what he means by this word. He speaks to her. He, he calls her name, and this is why she begins now finally to recognize him. And the, the text doesn't say it explicitly, but it certainly is implying that she, she reaches out for him to hold on to him, this joyful embrace, this joyful reunion. And he says to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, Anabino, to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Here's the first thing we want to see. He is saying to her here, you are a loved and redeemed child of God. And through this text, he now says to us, in this moment, which will never come again, You are a loved and redeemed people. And all pressure is off. All pressure is off. This is what he is referring to by the ascension, his ascension ministry. My same professor who coined that phrase, donut hole theology, he sums it up this way, that Jesus is promising. He had previously promised, and he's he's keeping that promise here. In John 14, verse 18, where he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And so now he's saying, I am ascending. I am not abandoning you. I am ascending to the throne so that I can rule with love and grace over you. I am not abandoning the work of the church. I am ascending to establish the work of the church. I am not abandoning or forsaking the world. I am ascending to the throne to take over the world. All pressure is off. He's essentially saying to her, she, well, she's essentially saying to him by the clinging, you, it's all good now, stay here. And he's essentially saying to her, no, I don't need to stay, and you don't need me to stay. Repeating the same saving work over and over and over. What if it really was true, the, the great image Kevin gave us about your sin, your, your cleansing being made as white as snow for just as long as that snow will remain white? How good is that good news? What if that really were true, that Jesus is saying to her, I have cleansed you for the moment. I have cleansed you for the moment. But there's another moment coming. There's another moment coming. The pressure is on. Keep cleansing yourself. And I have to stay here because I have to keep offering this sacrifice over and over and over and over and over. What if that's what he had said? What if he had said, yes, cling to me? Keep me here in my resurrected self so that I can continue this work which I really didn't finish. 
that would not be good news. And so it's, in fact, fantastic news that he's saying anabino. If you've got a, the Bible, this is three four verses from the book of Hebrews that make this point, of course. Referring to the Old Testament priests, and by remarkably wonderful contrast to Jesus, Hebrews chapter 10 talks about these priests who stand daily at their service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand. Notice the connection with his rising to to be seated. The sitting down means it is finished. So Jesus had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. When he did that, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It is finished, Jesus cried from the cross. Anabino, he says to Mary. You are loved and redeemed. All pressure is off. You don't need me to stay here repeating the same saving work over and over and over. Now, if you'll indulge me for a minute, a a, a moment of what might seem minutia, but in Presbyterianism, we believe in something called the session. And if you remember your, where that comes from, the old Latin and then the old English, the, the session, that's, that is court is in session, meaning court that the judges are seated. It means there's a seatedness to this rule. Jesus Christ rising to the throne to be seated That has profound implications. It means he is finished. It's like the seventh day of rest. He has finished his work. He's on the throne, seated, and from there now ruling the world, but his saving purposes, his atonement for sin, his resurrection from the dead is already accomplished. Now, one of the powerful passages that makes this point sort of by the exception that proves the rule sort of method of logic. You might remember just some weeks after this resurrection appearance where Stephen, one of the early servants in the life of the church, is preaching publicly and is persecuted and in fact stoned, killed, stoned to death and killed for his faith. But in that passage in Acts chapter 7, something remarkable happens, that he glances up to heaven. And as he's being stoned, I mean, rocks have already hit him, and and he's within moments of losing his life. And he, or excuse me, I, I jumped ahead. He has not been stoned yet. He's nearing the conclusion of his sermon, 
and he's about to be stoned. But what he, near, at the conclusion of his sermon, he glances, he says, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, you see, that's the exception that proves the rule. It's a very rare occurrence once Christ is ascended for him to be pictured not as seated, but as standing. And as a number of commentators have said, what this is is Jesus Christ welcoming Stephen home at the end of his life. Stephen needs this Jesus up from the throne to welcome him as he's being martyred. And so the point is, is that, as one of our hymns says, this sovereign king, this Lord Jesus, He is unresting and yet unhasting. He is at peace. He is tranquil. He is placid. He is unmoved by the ragings of the powers of the world. In fact, the Psalms talk about he chuckles at the ragings. He is calmly seated but with special affection on occasion, he rises from his throne to welcome Stephen into heaven. This is a Jesus who has already destroyed the works of the devil. This is what 1 John tells us, that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So what's Mary's job at that moment? What's your job today? What's my job? simply to believe and receive this. To take it as the remarkable good news that it is. What if Jesus had instead said, I am not ascending, but don't worry, I'm going to partner with you as you continue to make atonement for your own sin. I'm not ascending, but I'll partner with you as you destroy the works of the devil. I'll not ascending, but I'll partner with you as you somehow secure the power to live for eternity. There's no good news there, but the ascended, seated rule of Jesus Christ is remarkable good news. There's a silly old joke that uh, I'm kind of glad that we we were a little worried about whether we'd make it home today, so Troy and Joseph are going, to go to a, are going to a local church this morning in West Hartford. Kind of glad because they've heard me tell this joke like a thousand times. So I could do without the eye rolls this morning from, but no, they're, they're, very, they're very loving and respectful. Anyway, silly old joke, but I, it, it helps me. The joke is about these two friends. They haven't seen each other in a dozen years or so. And... The first friend sees his friend coming and just says, Whoa, I barely recognize you. All, what's happened to you? All the worry lines are gone. When I used to know you, you were worried and stressed all the time. You were like Eeyore. You were always looking down. You were just, you were just tense. But now, look, you're just gleaming like the sun. You're walking with joy, a pep in your step. Your head is up. What happened to you? And the second friend says, Well, it's the greatest thing. I found someone who will do all my worrying for me. And the first friend says, that that, that sounds great. How does this work? And he says, well, it's very simple. I pay him a million dollars a day, and he does all my worrying for me. And the first friend says, well, 
well, where do you get the money? And the second friend says, that's his worry. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, destroy the works of the devil. Secure eternal life for yourself. Provide the atonement for sin, for your own sin and the sins of the world. Or how about maybe, let that be Jesus' worry? How about maybe listen to him say, Anna Bino? And know that this is not him abandoning us, but it's precisely because he's finished this saving work. And he can now be seated from the throne, ruling us from there. Not quite sure about these, these, all the mystical visions that saints that have gone before us have had, but of course this is where, this, in this near-death experience, this marvelous phrase entered our culture. It is Julian of Norwich, this saint in the 14th century where she gets this vision of Jesus, and so she now repeats in literature, all will be well, and all will be well, and all manner of things will be well. And abino means that. It means all will be well. All will be well. All manner of things will be well. But anabino also means the second thing. You are a loved and redeemed people, So all pressure is off, but you are also now greatly needed and necessary. Notice what Jesus says right away. After comforting her by his, uh, showing her his affection for her by calling her name, saying Anabino, he sends her in that same moment He says to her, go to my brothers and say to them, Anabino. This is not a small thing, but the first time the apostles hear this good news, this Anabino good news, comes from Mary, the emissary of Jesus. He certainly could have theoretically said, Anabino but keep that to yourself because I want to deliver that firsthand to my apostles themselves. He theoretically could have done that. But what he does is he begins to show the importance now of his church and of you being his flesh, you being his mouth, you being his hands and his feet. He sends her. You are greatly needed and necessary. And then in in the next scene, which we we didn't read this morning, but in the very next scene when he does appear to the rest of the disciples, he he, he gives them this principle, this transitive property principle, essentially. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. He gave Mary this very specific task, and now he's giving his church this wonderful general task of being the living presence of Christ, the flesh of Jesus in this world. Go tell my brothers, he says to Mary, and then he says to all of his people, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. My favorite novelist in all the world was a National Book Award winner, one of the great novelists of the 20th century, a compatriot of Flannery O'Connor. His name was Walker Percy. Some of you would have heard of him, I trust. And in one of his, if not his greatest novel, Love and the Ruins, 
he is reflecting back. His, his marriage has fallen apart, and love is in the ruins, and the whole world is in the shambles. It's a remarkable novel. Weeds are growing up through the cracks in the interstate. Just, that's not a good sign. But his marriage is in shambles, and he's referring back to how it came apart. And he's, he's reflecting on these joyful memories of their early days when they were married, where he would go to church, but she wouldn't. And so this is what he says. They, they would take these just, just vacation, or just drive around the, the American West and, and just find some random hotel or motel and spend a couple nights there and explore the area and then drive to some new town. So this is what he says. But Sunday mornings, I would leave her and go to church. Now here was the strangest exercise of all, leaving the coordinate of the motel at the intersection of the interstates, leaving the motel with its standard doors and carpets and plumbing, leaving the interstates extending infinitely in all directions, abscissa and ordinate, descending through a moonscape countryside to a town where people had been living all these years, and to some forlorn little church up a side street, just in time for the 10 o'clock service. Stepping up on the porch as if I'd been doing it every year for some 20 years, and here comes the stove-up, bemused priest with his cup and his book. What am I even doing here, says his dazed expression. Upon whose head hands had been laid, and upon this other head other hands, and so on and so on. For here off Interstate 51... I touched the thread in the labyrinth. And the priest announced the turkey raffle and Wednesday bingo and preached the gospel and fed me Christ. And then back to the motel, exhilarated. Exhilarated by what? By eating Christ? Or by the secret discovery of the singular thread in this the unlikeliest of places, this geometry of hotels and interstates, and, and back to climb back in bed with Doris, all rosy-fleshed and creased of cheek, cracking one eye and opening her arms and smiling. My God, what is it that you do in church? What she didn't understand, she being merely spiritual and seeing religion as spirit, was that it took religion to save me from the spirit world, from orbiting the earth like Lucifer and the angels, that it took nothing less than touching the thread off the misty interstates and eating Christ himself to make me mortal man again and let me inhabit my own flesh and love her in the morning. Touching the thread in the labyrinth. Do you know what that's an allusion to? I had some vague memory from Greek mythology so there it is, right? So uh, there's a minotaur, right? And he has, has this terrifying maze, this labyrinth. And uh, one, of the, one of the daughters, um, Aden or something. But to, to not get lost and trapped in this labyrinth, she unspools a scarlet thread so she can find her way back. I, I just think that's just this brilliant image that Percy seizes upon. This world is a confusing maze. And so many of us end up trapped in it and die of starvation. 
and never find our way out and never get welcomed home? How can you escape the terrifying and confusing maze of this world? And Percy says, the only way is by the local flesh of the body of Christ. The local church touching the singular thread throughout this confusing thousands of years of world history. Here we find how needed and necessary we are because Christ is ascended. Now, let's see if I'm going to put Mike Brungis on the spot here. Um, this is going to be a rhetorical question. Don't worry. Just nod and smile and you'll be fine. I'm not going to ask you to like, say something. But... Um, it's, I'm really putting myself on the spot because I'm going to engage like this ridiculous theoretical exercise. What if theoretically the ascended, the, excuse me, the resurrected Christ did say to Mary, yes, cling to me, I am going to stay here. And we're going to build the church with me here on planet Earth. So now we've brought Mike to town to start a new church in the area and What would your strategy be, since church is getting people to touch Jesus, what would your strategy be for the people of the the north of town area? And I'm going to say, your strategy ought to be something like, get a charter plane every single Sunday, or as often as you can afford it, and fly them over to where Jesus happens to be. On that particular moment in human history, Middle East or Africa or wherever he is, find him and go there. And by the way, on the way, give him a quick tutorial on how to understand the language he will be speaking that day. If the only way to find the real resurrected Christ is through his own corporal body, he does have a physically resurrected body now, then that's the sort of church strategy we'd have to adopt, I would think. Something like that. Just not. Does that, isn't, isn't that, doesn't that sound brilliant, given my st- stupid suppositions? Okay. Now, but back to unstupid suppositions. Back to the brilliance of Jesus himself saying, no, here's the mission. You will be able to do greater works, he had promised in John 14. Greater in the sense of being everywhere on any given Sunday off of any random interstate, thanks to the development of the church in North America. I can be found anywhere where my people gather with word and sacrament and prayer. And so, anabino means you are loved and redeemed, all pressure is off, but it also means you are greatly needed and necessary. You are the one that Jesus is is sending into the lives of people that otherwise would not be able to touch him apart from the interaction with you and with this church or the churches that you'll be part of. There is no way people will be able to meet Jesus in all his fullness apart from them touching you and his people, his church. And here's the third implication of many others. We could go on all day, but here's one final implication from this glorious word, anabino. You are loved and redeemed. All pressure is off. It is finished. I have destroyed the works of the devil. And yet, I am sending you. You will be my flesh. You will be my hands and feet. You are greatly needed and necessary. And then finally, but I'm not merely sending you. 
I am empowering you. Because there is this distinct connection between him rising to the throne to do something. And that something is to send the Holy Spirit to now empower you. In fact, that is happens in the next scene, which again, we didn't read this morning. But in the next scene where he does appear to the rest of the disciples, he says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And then he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. You're not just loved and redeemed, forgiven of your sin. Although that is glorious. You're not just loved and redeemed and given a new record of righteousness and made a son or daughter of God. Although that is glorious. But you are the hands and feet of Jesus who are also empowered by His Holy Spirit. This is what Paul goes on to make plain in many, many, many places. We'll just pick one of them in Galatians chapter 3 where he connects this saving work of Christ with its real time, the eternal present implications in your life. He refers to the past. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. This is Galatians 3 verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Four o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon, you are empowered by the Holy Spirit. How do we know? How do you know that the Holy Spirit is in your life? Well, Eugene Peterson puts it like like this. He says, The self can be defined as the soul without God. And so now just consider who you are in yourself, your own natural abilities, natural strengths. The difference between how you would be, how you would react, how you would live, how you would treat person or persons naturally, and whether you do so according to the fruit of the Holy Spirit is the proof of his presence in your life. Paul, a couple chapters later in Galatians, says, and he says this isn't so much rocket science, he says these things are obvious, they're apparent to all, that the works of the flesh are things like sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, things like these. But wherever, instead, in these moments, these four o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon moments, there's love, there's joy, there's peace, there's patience flowing from you that you can't quite explain. How were you able to hold your tongue 
in that moment? It doesn't make sense. You usually would have spoken. Or conversely, how were you able to speak clearly and lovingly and boldly? That doesn't make sense. You're usually too terrified. How were you able to? Because the Holy Spirit has been present, working through you fruits of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Anabino, Jesus says, this, this artwork certainly evokes the Holy Spirit to me. The presence of the Spirit in our lives. But you see, of course, this is what this whole worship service teaches us every single week. Every single week we're, we're taught that faith begins with this affection for Jesus. And this acknowledgement of your need. Sometimes one precedes the other, sometimes the other precedes the one. They go together. Faith begins with this acknowledgement of your need and this affection for Jesus. I always appreciated how a former associate pastor of mine in a previous life, <laughs> um, when we would be interviewing folks for membership and we would move carefully through the questions of the book of church order. Do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner, justly deserving God's displeasure? Do you believe and receive Jesus Christ as Savior, and so on, these questions that are very carefully thought through, and they certainly contain a very clear implication of this, of this necessary thing. But I always appreciated how this one former associate pastor of mine would always ask that one question very forthrightly. After hearing all the testimony and everything, just simply say, do you love him? But, but do you love him? Not that he was questioning anything he'd heard to that point, but just wanting to hear this affection for Jesus. And it was, it was just wonderful, recently working with Preston through this process of how we're recruiting new church planters. And so when we're at the stage where we get to make uh, these, these reference calls on these potential church planters, we are working through the protocol of that. And I might have been very tempted just to jump ahead to... to Okay, so I want to ask this person about, about the potential church planter certain questions about are they you know, an entrepreneur? Are they able to get things started? Are they self, self-starter? What are their skills like? What's their preaching like? And Preston was very careful to slow us down and say, no, no, make sure the first thing you're finding out from all of this person's references is do they love Jesus? <laughs> do they have a personal, living, vital relationship with Jesus Christ? And so here's Mary in this passage. Here's the disciples in this passage. And see, this is where the Holy Spirit moves in. Is when there's this affection for Jesus and this acknowledgement of need. This is why, of course, Jesus begins the Beatitudes. Blessed are those that already have it all put together. Blessed are those that are just so content, they're never distraught or worried about anything. No, that's not what he says in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn. He begins, blessed are the poor in spirit, the weak, the needy. He makes plain in another passage, of course, I literally didn't, he didn't say literally, I'm putting that in. I did not come for the healthy. He says that. In the original Greek, I did not come means I did not come. I did not come for the healthy. I did not come for the righteous. And so this acknowledgement, (laughs) I am the needy one. I'm like Mary. I'm distraught. I'm confused. I don't even recognize Jesus when he's right there standing next to me. 
And this acknowledgement of need is where the Holy Spirit comes swooping in. This empowering presence of Jesus Christ now filling our hearts and our corporate lives together. No, no longer will we be ever, ever content again for, with, with a self-awareness, a self-image, a soul empty of God, empty of Jesus. No, we need this ascended Christ now with us, empowering us. And so this, of course, has every implication you can imagine for why we attempt to do church the way we do, why we plant churches and work for the empowerment of people, the gospel empowerment of all of his people. Because we are believing not in a donut hole theology. We're believing in a Christ who honors this moment, which will never come again, who is present in this moment precisely because he's not present in one sense and more richly present in the deepest sense of all. Let's pray together.